Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Welcome to this week's Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Thanks so much for choosing to listen to us today. I'm Ali Maxwell. Now, the first rule of podcasting is to talk about what you're passionate about. Now, that's the easiest way, I think, to be at least slightly engaging. For me, that means learning more about football tactics, trends, and the numbers that help us better understand the game. The second rule of podcasting is to only talk about things you actually know about. You won't get very far if you are bluffing. And that's where I'm very grateful to be joined by Michael Cox and Mark Carey, my regular co-hosts. They are the tactics and analytics writers for The Athletic. Another week, another pod. How are we doing, guys? I'm very well. Thank you. Looking forward to today's pod. Yeah, also good as well. This is probably a little bit sad of me, but I checked and I'm now into double figures in terms of being on the podcast, which is good. <laughs> this is uh, actually my 11th. I thought it was my 10th, but um, yeah, small sample size. See how we get on by the end of the season. That's interesting because it's at this stage, Mark, where you might start to feel more comfortable, but actually the narrative changes a little bit. And in footballing terms, you do start to get judged a little more harshly, I think. You know, when a young player comes in, I, I've lost count of the amount of times I've seen like very young debutants or players making their first or second start winning Man of the Match awards just by default because they haven't done something horrendous and because we all love young players, myself included, and get excited <laughs> about the, their potential. Uh, in your first few pods, I think that was very much the case. We were we were just really excited to see the potential. And now it's a case of you know, making sure that you earn your crust, so to speak. So good to have you both. Uh, Michael, you saw something tactically unique, I reckon, on Monday night in a game that you went to. Uh, maybe one day we'll do a deep dive into how a goalkeeper should approach their rare foray into the opposition box late on in a game. Now, I know on Monday night you saw what could only be described as a, a novel approach to a last-minute goalkeeper attack, not one that will catch on, surely. Yeah, so this was Car Short and Kingstonian on, on uh, Monday night, which Car Short won 1-0. And in the last minute, Kingstonian got a corner. Um, the goalkeeper making just his second appearance for Kingstonian on loan from someone quite good. Comes up for a corner. Obviously, the most exciting thing in football is a goalkeeper coming up for a corner. 
Um, but rather than just getting in the box, like waiting for a ball in, into the mixer, he hung back on the edge of the box on the far side, the opposite to where the corner was being taken. And I mean, obviously the ball didn't come his way because, <laughs> I mean, I've never seen any player position there pretty much ever for a corner kick, let alone a goalkeeper coming up. It's one of the strangest things I've ever seen. Of course, the first corner was cleared. The second corner was shanked behind the uh, the goal for a, a goal kick, and he just had to run back. But I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna sprint eighty yards up the pitch, <laughs> get into a proper position. It was bizarre. So I'm someone who, and I'm clutching at straws here, but as someone who, in my own very poor standard of football, it is not someone who's going to win a lot of headers and is certainly not going to score a header from a corner, but thinks of themselves as an attacking player. Sometimes there are two options. One of them is to sort of stand on the goalkeeper's toes and make yourself a nuisance and try and pick up on any loose balls. But actually, I sort of see a reason to stand at the back of the box for the one that gets overhit or maybe just a glanced flicked, flicked header from first contact which can come to you at the back of the box and then you can, you know, maybe float one to the back stick or have a go from there. The thing is, they rarely score, but they do usually cause some level of panic, don't they? Mm. Often, you know, a defender will have to leave another play and go mark him, but if you're just hanging back on the edge of the, on the far edge of the box... You're really not influencing the game at all. It was a bizarre sight. <laughs> Mark, you've got transfers very much on the agenda on the Athletic site at the moment, and one in particular on the Athletic Transfer Live blog just a few hours ago. Paddy Boyland confirmed that Lucas Dina's move to Aston Villa took a significant step forward this morning. The Athletic understands a fee of £23 million plus add-ons for the French international. Uh, and you tried to answer a question I think a lot of people have been wondering in the last few weeks. Just how good is Luca Digne? Yeah, that's the thing, because I guess the narrative around him, because obviously the, the teams that he's played for, as well as Everton, obviously PSG, Roma um, and Barcelona, where he obviously came from um, to Everton, was that, you, you know, you place him as this really, really strong left back, which he is, and he's shown to be for Everton. But kind of looking into the numbers of, I guess, how does he compare to himself, I guess, across previous seasons, but also across the, the Premier League in the time that he's been there um, and his creat- creativity in terms of his expected assists per 90 is is right up there, only beaten by Andy Robertson in the time that he's been um, he's been there at Everton. So it just shows how creative he's been, how much of a creative force he is. He's a little bit suspect defensively at times, but um, yeah, I really enjoyed writing it with, um, with the support of, of Paddy and it seems to have already got a pretty good reception, which I'm pleased with. Michael, he, he moves to Aston Villa, should he should the transfer go through and he moves into a unique tactical system, we think, certainly at Premier League level at this moment in time and one in which the fullbacks are are hugely important. Stephen Gerrard's Christmas tree formation, of course, that we spoke about a few weeks ago. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Matt Target's been quite good over the last 18 months or so, so they'll have to be fairly confident that Dean's a significant upgrade and I think he probably is, actually. I think think he's a really good crosser Mm. and, um, yeah, I like him as a player. And him and Coutinho being brought in to uh, freshen up the left side of that team. I think it's genuinely quite exciting. You look at the, the players Villa brought in over the last year or so, maybe two years, there's clearly a lot of ambition there. And you can see why, you know, Gerard did get some stick for, uh, you know, leaving Rangers for a mid-table side. But they clearly do have ambitions to push on. So I'm quite, in, yeah, enjoyed watching him under Gerard and excited to see him for the rest of the season. Now we move a little closer to kicking off our proper topic this week by talking about another transfer that we expect to go through imminently. Uh, It's a striker, Chris Wood, 
who we believe is signing for Newcastle United from Burnley for maybe 20, 25 million pounds, a release clause that didn't seem to be widely known about. Uh, this has got us thinking about strikers in particular and Premier League strikers. Uh, the Premier League striker landscape, if you will, is our topic for this week. Michael, what have you made of the Chris Wood saga, if we can call it that? Um, I actually really like him as a player. I, I know he's he's a, a little bit primitive and old-fashioned, but I think that's what makes him quite interesting and quite fun. And I always were we discussing last week about Mitrovic and and how I think he could be mm. a Plan B. I think Chris Wood could be a good Plan B for a big side, um, and that's probably what he might be um, at Newcastle once Callum Wilson comes back from injury. But yeah, he's I guess he's um, the opposite to um a lot of the type of players at the top of the goal scoring charts and uh yeah i thought it'd be interesting to have a, a discussion of the strikers on show in the premier league this year i was going to ask you about this i know you've always seemed to be quite a big fan of callum wilson so do you see let's say they're both fit do you see a wilson and wood partnership do you see eddie howe going two up top or do you see wood very much being bought as uh, a, a plan b of sorts of course uh, one other outcome the collateral is weakening of a, a relegation rival in burnley yeah, that is a big factor, isn't it? And and that might reflect, uh, you know, how much they paid for him. I know that's a re- release clause, but when they're weighing that up, yeah, it significantly weakens Burnley. Um, could he play with Wilson? I think he could. I think Wilson's very good at running the channels. He's also coming uh, good at coming short. But we might see a slightly different element to to Wood's game as well. I mean, it's easy to say he's he's just a target man. He's just a number nine. But I think if you play in this Burnley side, that's what you're forced to be. Um, I think he's actually quite good on the ground as well. So we might see a little bit more of his uh, all-round skill set as well. Well, more on Burnley and their goal scorers later. Did you know that they have the league leader in the Premier League for non-penalty goals per 90? And it's not Chris Wood. So they're not necessarily losing their plan A in giving Newcastle a plan B. We are talking about the number nine position, Premier League strikers. And... We're fascinated by it because we've been thinking about Chris Wood and Newcastle and Burnley. Uh, But also, Michael, last week we discussed, among other things, the fact that Manchester City are league leaders, do not play with a striker, that Pep Guardiola's uh, latest trick is to show how football can be played beautifully and successfully without a number nine, as uh, was previously assumed to be pretty crucial throughout footballing history. Uh, And it's not just Manchester City to focus on. We want to talk about Premier League strikers as a whole. More specifically, where have all the goal-scoring number nines gone, Michael? Last week we spoke about Pep's Man City and how they're thri- thriving without playing a striker at all. But in terms of goal output, it feels like we're a bit light across the whole league in terms of goal-scoring strikers right now. Yeah, that is true. I mean, the top goal-scoring charts in the Premier League, it's quite an odd pattern at the moment. I mean, Salah's way clear at the top. But yeah, you look at some of the numbers of um, of the teams at the top and they just don't have a dominant goal-scorer. Not so much at the bottom, where there are a few more prominent, dominant goal-scoring players, whether they're number nines or other players. Yeah, some interesting patterns going on. And Mark, is this a case of us seeing less goals in general in the Premier League? Or is it something that we need to dig a little deeper in, in terms of the the number nine position and perhaps the personnel at the moment? Uh, I I guess the short answer is no. Premier League goals kind of aren't down in general. Um, I looked at the the average goals per game in the Premier League after 21 game weeks, which is how many we've had uh, so far in the Premier League. I looked at this over the past 10 seasons and we're about sort of where we should be um, in terms of the, the number of goals scored. Now, we're talking sort of small numbers here in terms of comparison, but 
there's 1.43 goals per team per game on average in terms of uh, this season, which is actually the, the joint second highest in the past 10 years. But we're talking splitting hairs. The highest was actually 1.45 goals per team per game. So that was in 2012-13 season. So on average, let's say 1.4 goals per team per game. We're about where we should be. So no different to, to previous seasons is the short answer. That's the first time I've heard anyone say goals per team per game <laughs> rather than just goals per game. It took me a, a couple of seconds to work out I just needed to multiply it by two to yeah, get the basically. number I'm more familiar with, Mark. So thanks for slightly freaking me out there. So we're not down on goals. We are down on individual goal scorers, Michael. Therefore, it's a little more democracy in terms of the goal scoring in the Premier League. I mean, Liverpool, the exception with Salah out on, on, I think, 16 goals at the moment. But City and Chelsea are really spreading it around as they did last season. I mean, at the moment, both of them, their top goal scorer has only seven goals. Sterling and Silva, uh, Bernardo Silva for Manchester City and Mason Mount for Chelsea. Um, so they've got fewer goals than Leeds' top goal scorer because Rafinha's got eight. Fewer than Watford's top goal scorer because Dennis has eight. Um, and that is a continuation of the pattern we saw last year. If you go back to last season's table and you rank every club by how many goals their top goal scorer got, City, uh, who won the league, obviously, were just joint eighth on that table. And Chelsea were third bottom. Only Fulham and Wolves had a, a player who scored fewer goals than them. And of course, Jorginho's goals, I think all of them apart from one, were penalties. Um, so it is a continuation of the pattern we saw from last year. I don't think it's necessarily intentional. I mean, Chelsea brought in Lukaku. City were keen to bring in Harry Kane. So they clearly do want a prolific number nine. But they're showing that, I guess, you don't need one. And they have adjusted pretty well to, to not having one. You say you don't need one. I mean, this is across all football and not just the Premier League. You will regularly hear people say, all we need is someone to bang in 20 goals and we'll achieve our aims this season. Now, I think this has probably become a bit of a straw man over time. The amount of people actually saying that sincerely, probably not as big as the people like me who bring it up in order to dispel it. But it feels like what you're saying, Michael, is definitively at the top of the Premier League, particularly, it's not a case of needing one individual player to score 20 goals a season. No, I think that is true. I think it's worth pointing out that no one has finished top goal scorer and uh, been playing for the champions since Robin Van Persie in 2013 when he moved to Manchester United that first season. But yeah, it, I mean, it wasn't unreasonable for Chelsea fans to say it about Lukaku last season. They clearly were lacking someone in that mould. The Champions League success showed that they were very solid in defence. Loads of options in midfield, loads of creative players. They did pretty much just need someone to play up front. Um, obviously, Lukaku hasn't uh, necessarily enjoyed playing up front in that particular role himself. Now, is this trend, if we can start to call it that, uh, of goals being spread around a little more, of them not being quite so weighted towards poachers, number nine, strikers, whatever word you want to use. Is this also happening across major European leagues, looking at Spain, Italy, Germany? No, that's the interesting thing. It's relatively unique to the Premier League. So I looked at the stats here and across the big five leagues, um, there are 28 players who have scored nine or more goals so far this season. Um, seven play in Ligue 1, seven play in Serie A, six play in La Liga, five play in the Bundesliga and only three play in the Premier League. Um, and it's also worth pointing out the German sides have played fewer games because they play fewer games overall. Um, so the Premier League's closest rival in that sense is, is slightly disadvantaged. And of the Premier League's three, two of them play for the same club, uh, Salah and Jota. So it is relatively unique to the Premier League. 
Um, you can look at Napoli. They're the, probably the closest thing to City or Chelsea. They've scored 37 goals this season. Their top goal scorer, Drews Mertens, has only scored six. Um, that's slightly influenced by the fact that um, Ozzy Men, who's their, their main number nine, has been out for the last month or so with injury. Um, and just for a bit of fun, because I know you love fun, Ali, uh, <laughs> the opposite end of the spectrum, Alaves, uh, their number nine is Josselu, formerly of Stoke and Newcastle. I'm sure you remember he scored 10 of their 16 goals so far. That is 62.5%. That is very extreme. I've never heard someone say the word fun with so little hint of fun in their voice before. <laughs> but it was fun. Thank you for that. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast where we reckon there are fewer goal-scoring nines in the Premier League in this day and age. Next, we're going to look back at previous Premier League eras to see what things were like on this front back in the day. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. When I say... We're going back in the day in Premier League terms. It's not quite right. I, I want to get an idea of the trends and changes on this topic. So I've asked you guys to look at three seasons at five-year intervals from where we are now, just to see what things look like on this front, just to see what things look like on this front. So starting in the 2016-17 season, Michael, Mark, what did the Premier League striker landscape look like? Well, I think it's interesting to to look at the the top five goal scorers from that season, um, and they were Harry Kane with twenty nine goals, Romelu Lukaku twenty five goals, Alexis Sanchez twenty four, Diego Costa and Sergio Aguero on twenty, making up the top five. Which I looked at this using, um, well, it's it's freely available data, but also used it through the uh, the Opta tool, which all defined those players. Um, as centre forwards in their sort of definition, which I just think is interesting in itself in terms of compare that with this season where you've got people who are known to be left and right wingers or attacking midfielders as well as the odd sort of centre forward. I think Diogo Jota's down as a centre forward, but that may be something we can come on to as to whether what his actual role is because it's quite fluid. Um, but yeah, all players that you'd sort of associate with being kind of central strikers down the middle, which even in that short space of time, five years on, seems to kind of have an evolution I think which is interesting yeah I guess Sanchez is the only one you'd, you'd slightly question because I think he did play out front for most of that campaign didn't he but wasn't really a natural centre forward I think preferred playing in a deep position and often played off the left for Arsenal but yeah I mean if you if you rank every team by how many their top goal scorer got um, the top six in that list are all teams who finished between first and seventh place the interesting thing is that in that season the exception were Liverpool who'd be down in 11th in this sense uh, Coutinho and Mane were their joint top goal scorers. And now they're the outliers in a different sense. Now they're the only team in the Premier League who does have a 
one dominant player scoring uh, close-ish to a goal <laughs> a game. But uh, yeah, they've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other. I noticed in my research for this podcast that Liverpool, in fact, have the top three players for non-penalty expected goals uh, in the Premier League this season. Of course, that front three of Salah and Mane and Diego Jota. More on all of them uh, later on. So 16-17 look pretty different to this season. What if we go back 10 years to the 2011-12 season? For me, this was just great just to look back on because it was kind of my... (laughs) prime sort of teenage years to look back at um, in terms of watching the Premier League. It was Robin Van Persie in his final Arsenal year, um, 30 goals in terms of these top goal scorers. Wayne Rooney on 27, Sergio Aguero 23, Clint Dempsey having a good season, um, Emmanuel Adebayor and Yakubu all on 17, which is just a great, all three of those great blasts from the past. Um, so again, I think it, it sort of falls into the same category of your sort of central strikers um, being the ones to score, maybe with the exception of Clint Dempsey there. Um, but I think what's interesting as well is the the formation. So again, the tool that I used to look at this, I looked at the the club formations, which are, okay, they might have changed game to game, but overarching across the season, on average, what was the, um, the sort of formation? And 15 of the 20 clubs um, played predominantly with a 4-4-2. Um, or a variation of that, maybe a 4-4-1-1, which is interesting, which kind of feeds into the idea of what the the role of the striker or the number nine was there um, as well. So there was only two with playing a 4-3-3 on average and three with a 4-3-2-1. So I just think it was interesting in terms of the the players who are obviously high in the goal-scoring charts, but how the, the formation and the team that they play in um, sort of played into to that goal-scoring. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, that season, the top two goal-scorers with Van Persie and Rooney. The next season, they were paired together for Manchester United, who won the league. And I think that says a lot. It was, I mean, that Manchester United side probably the most based around the front two in, in the Premier League era. But yeah, it, it did feel like quite a different time compared to now. And what about 2006, 2007? Our last retrospective. Michael, who, who are the main names here? What are the themes of the striker landscape back in that year? With Didier Drogba, top goal scorer, and then Benny McCarthy in, in one lone brilliant season for Blackburn. I mean, football felt quite defensive at that point. There'd been a shift to lone strikers and they tended to be a bit more one-dimensional. We we have uh, we had quite what now seems quite uh, an old-fashioned view of how you play as a lone striker, which was kind of very back to goal. You list those names. So yeah, Drogba, Benny McCarthy, Mark Viduka. And Yakuba again at Middlesbrough, which kind of completely fit with what you're saying there, Michael, in terms of that that more strong, powerful striker. Um, whereas now I think those sorts of number nines or those, a profile of player that you think of kind of similarly would have a bit more, I don't want to discredit them to say technical quality, but a little bit more kind of subtlety in their movement in terms of build-up play and not necessarily just... Again, it might be doing them a disservice, just bringing balls down and sort of playing off them. Um, they're clearly very good goal scorers as well, but you can sort of see that difference in terms of that sort of strength and power versus a bit more subtlety in the game now. It strikes me that talking through those previous eras, two pretty strong factors here are the profile of the players themselves that are being um, that are being developed that are being asked to do slightly different things and team strategy, team formation, Michael. Maybe you could start us there. Yeah, I mean, I think the the role of the centre forward has changed. I mean, we we talk a lot about false nines and true nines and that kind of thing, and we do like categorising players in that respect, particularly on this podcast. But the dominant model now is between a false nine and a real number nine, I would say. 
I mean, Harry Kane is the, the best example. He Last season, he scored the most goals in the Premier League and he got the most assists. And the champions wanted to buy him for £100 million pounds or more. And we talked about it in respect of Arsenal as well. I mean, Lacazette is a good a good example of the fact he's come into the side instead of Aubameyang, really. OK, there's some off-field reasons for Aubameyang's absence, but I think everyone would agree Lacazette is making the side work better. He's not scoring that many goals, but historically tends to get 12, 15 if he plays for an entire campaign. So, yeah, whether it's midfielders playing up front or whether it's strikers dropping deep, I do think we've broadly converged on a, a certain type of centre-forward that most top clubs want to have. And uh, Mark mentioned briefly Diego Jota, I think is a good example of that. I've been really impressed at how good he's been in the box in terms of headed goals. But I think his link play is also very good as well. Yeah, it feels like a move towards, I think, what they call universality, a, a necessity now. I really mean a necessity because specialist type strikers seem to have more or less gone out of the, the top level of the game completely. I mean, previously, dare I say it, you could pigeonhole a profile of a striker into a poacher, uh, a target man or a link player. And that's not to say that every striker was only one of those things, but generally they sort of specialised in one of those units. And now I feel like there's massively more of an onus to do all of those things to, to a certain level. Um, and, and that, Mark, is definitely reflected in the type of players that we'll be talking about in the next part when we go through each team and, and see who they have playing up front and what they're asking them to do. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case at the the very top level amongst the the very top sides. And if you do see anyone lower down who's far more kind of rounded in their ability, then they'll often get kind of snapped up by the uh, the teams in the sort of top half and above. I'd say. Um, obviously, you still get them maybe lower down. You go in terms of the the different kind of specialist um, roles. And there's there's some exceptions, uh, I suppose, uh, in terms of that. I was thinking in terms of the false nine amongst the the top teams. We spoke about Lacazette. Kane, Firmino playing that false nine role in Manchester City, having a multitude of, of false nines. Um, Jamie Vardy's probably the exception to that, where he's almost your archetypal number nine playing off the shoulder when you're thinking of maybe the sort of the top teams. But um, yeah, I think it's an interesting point that it's it's now yeah far more well-rounded than, uh, than necessarily the, the individual um, specialist roles, as you say. And it strikes me there's been a real increase in the sort of average level of physicality that a striker has to show in the Premier League. I mean, Michael, Mark, you, you talked through some of the, the, the key names from 5, 10, 15 years ago. And of course, a lot of those we see as being very physical strikers. And perhaps that's what helps them to stand out even more at that, at that period of time. When I say physicality, I don't necessarily mean just what we used to think of as a target man. I don't really mean height necessarily. But if you look at the average number nine, and we're going to go through basically all of them in, in the next 20 minutes or so, you basically won't find any that don't reach a certain threshold of physicality. Um, and that's upper body strength. That can also mean how quick you are off the mark, things like acceleration, how 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 quick your darts are, basically, when you're making runs uh, outside defenders, inside defenders. Uh, it, it feels like that has to be something that you could probably track as well, Michael, this this increased base level of, of physicality in this position in the Premier League, in all positions in the Premier League. Yeah, you're probably right. Even the players we think of as being quite slight generally are quite good in that respect these days. Again, Jota's a good example. You look at him, you don't think he's going to be good at shielding the ball, but I think he is. Um, and you're right, it's all positions. 
Even someone like Eden Hazard always used to really impress me with his upper body strength, which is amazing for a player who, A, was quite short, and B, I gather, did absolutely no work in the gym whatsoever after training <laughs> sessions. So I don't know how that works, but yeah, you're right. People like, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of a... You can pretty much list all of them. Bamford, Calvert-Lewin, Watkins, Antonio, uh, someone like Tony who has stepped up with Brentford. These guys have at their core a a physicality that's not necessarily strength that's not necessarily height it doesn't mean they're winning flick-ons it doesn't mean they're dominating aerially but there's a there's a, a manner in which they can handle the increased speed of the game and the increased phys- physicality of center backs in a way that you know I, I guess basically what i'm saying is there aren't really any slow weak strikers in the premier league because they simply wouldn't last very long, even if they were really good at linking play or even if they were brilliant penalty box poachers like Paul Dickov always springs to mind. They just wouldn't exist now because they wouldn't get very far, I don't think. I think that's two weeks in a row you've mentioned Paul Dickov. <laughs> I could be wrong, but it just feels like a quite an elaborate player to mention two weeks in a row. He, he wasn't great, but nor was he like a comedy figure. He Are was you- just quite a good Premier League <laughs> striker for a while but he was in this specific instance a very small poacher right yeah there you go you wait and see how i crowbar him into next week's discussion on goal scoring goalkeepers oh no wait we've already done that one (laughs) Uh, this is the athletic football tactics podcast heading into part three this week's topic being premier league strikers and changes in their roles and goals output it seems only fair to dig a little bit deeper and take a look at the individuals in question This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. So guys, between us, we've we've looked at the current crop of Premier League strikers across all 20 clubs. You know, we're looking at a, a pool of 
what, between 20 and 30 players here. Let's see if we can find a couple more answers or, or pick out any more points of interest to confirm or 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 expand on what we're discussing here. We, we've we split them into different categories. Uh, the first few teams are kind of in their own category because I think they're in interesting situations at the moment. Liverpool first up. I mean, first and foremost, Mark, I nicked a stat earlier. The top three players in the league for non-penalty expected goals. You know, if City are spreading it out impressively over six, seven, eight, nine players, Liverpool are still doing that, even if it's only three of them. They're, they are just generating such varied goal threat from their attackers. Yeah, and obviously some of the key attacking threat being from, from Mane and Salah, and you take them out of the, the side because of the African Cup of Nations, and you start to think where will... Liverpool kind of plugged the gaps. It's been a conversation topic since the start of the season. Will Minamino step up? Origi maybe? Um, could Oxlade-Chamberlain maybe do a role? He, he sort of played a bit of a false nine role himself um, in pre-season, I think, at some, on some occasions for Liverpool this season. So, yeah, they've got gold threats coming from all over, but you take out the, the Salah and Mane threat. Um, and in the short term, how will they cope? I don't know whether it's maybe a change in formation ever so slightly. They've been very set on a 4-3-3. Obviously, since Klopp's been been around, is it worth them maybe moving to a four-two-three-one to accommodate Firmino and Jota? Maybe play Origi as the one. Um, I don't know. It's it's up for debate. I don't think Klopp will do that. I think they'll kind of stick to their main principles of a four-three-three. But um, yeah, you take the the threat of Salah and Mane out of the side, and you're going to uh, struggle maybe. Michael, it strikes me we've been talking about Liverpool and the African Cup of Nations since before the season even began. I think I'm right in saying there's only two league games in this period for Liverpool yeah. uh, and the two legs of the Carabao Cup semi-final to play against Arsenal as well. But have you spent any time or as much time as anyone else thinking about how they might cope with this and in a tactical sense, you know, just to pick at the thread of what Mark was talking about, how do they handle the absence of two very specifically goal-scoring wide forwards while also, you know, the two that are left behind really in terms of senior strikers being Jota and Firmino, who won't have played a huge amount together. Well, uh, I think there's two things to say here. One, one, yeah, it's a bit of an issue for the next couple of games. And they've been light on a wide player probably for two or three years. I mean, I've been constantly surprised they haven't just got someone who's at the level who's developing, who's happy to be a backup, who can play either side as lots of wingers could. I don't think it has to be anyone absolutely sensational. But I mean, just to kind of... This is a name off the top of my head, but you could get Jack Harrison from Leeds in there who can play either side. And that would be the kind of level I'd, I'd expect for Liverpool to have on the bench and someone who can come in when the other two are unavailable. To be fair, wasn't um, wasn't that really the plan for Jota in January of last season, but he ended up being so good that he broke into the first team. Yeah, but it feels to me like Jota has been a... I mean, he's more of a replacement for Firmino and mm. can be a replacement for any of the front three, really. But if you've got two of them out, you're struggling, really. Origi is a completely different type of player and, and obviously um, tactically is, is useful in that respect. But I've been really surprised they haven't got another player in. I agree with you in the sense that I think people make too much of the Africa Cup of Nations. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not that many league games they're going to be without these two. And while it is going to be an issue over the next couple of weeks, I'm not sure why it dominates talk throughout the season quite so much. I suppose it's just because you know in advance it's going to happen and therefore maybe you can plan for it. But... There'll be games where lots of teams are without two of their best three attackers because of injury or suspension. And we don't really base our whole season's narrative around it. So, yeah, I'm surprised they haven't got someone else to bring in. But I think you just have to get on with it, don't you? 
I'm wary not to die on my sword about Liverpool here. I think that the only reason I probably mention it in terms of Salah and Mane is because, the, the, as we've spoken about before, in terms of the league, you draw one game or even a couple of games because of their absence. And that could be the rate we're going with Manchester City, just blowing teams away. Um, that could be the difference between the, the league and not. So maybe I got a bit carried away with my Liverpool hat on there. But even though it is just a couple of games, that may well or could well be the, the difference. Yeah, certainly take your point. There's not a lot of margin for error at the top of the Premier League uh, when Man City are, are picking up points like this. I mean, in, in the... Actually, could I just make one one quick point, Ali? Please. I think maybe maybe a slightly overlooked issue is that not when the players are away, but often when they come back, they're mm. quite below par because it's such a demand. I mean, physically, it's a demanding tournament. Now it's 24 teams. If you get to the final, you're going to play seven games in four weeks or something. Obviously, there's issues in terms of coming... Uh, from one climate to another I remember some players I think it was Chelsea's players about 10 years ago were speaking about how difficult that was so maybe it's an issue for the rest of the campaign rather than just now interesting Arsenal are in an interesting position in terms of their striker at the moment because Aubameyang is out the picture uh, currently Michael we're seeing Lacazette start a lot of games in that position and Ketia maybe bumped up the pecking order uh, pecking order to be his sort of backup Lacazette is that a good situation for them to be in and how important is the 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 much talked about Dusan Vlahovic of Fiorentina, who Arsenal fans seem to be getting quite excited about. As I say, I think Lacazette's the best option for Arsenal at the moment, but I think there's a pretty good chance that none of Aubameyang, Lacazette and Nketiah will be there for next season for various reasons. Aubameyang's fallen out with the manager, Lacazette, his contract is coming to an end and I don't think Arsenal will give him the kind of deal he will he will want to stay. And Nketiah probably will just want first team football at some point rather than just being a Carling Cup specialist. Don't know why I said Carlin Cup, hasn't been called that for about a decade, <laughs> but you get my point. I mean, Vlaivis, yeah, he, he would be a, a good replacement and basically just tick all the boxes. He's a goal scorer. He's very good in the air. He can hold the ball up. People talked about his link play. I think that tends to come a little bit later. You can't sign a striker who's just a specialist in absolutely everything. And the guy's 21, 22 later this month. Yeah, that you improve when you get to 22, 23, 24. And, and that's the kind of thing that Arteta, I'm sure, would look to bring out of him so yeah I think they're going to end up replacing three strikers with one and a half maybe because I think Martinelli might play up front sometimes it's a big decision you know going to be a big decision who they do get in because at the moment it feels like that's the one area that isn't quite there maybe another central midfield player but the striker really is what Arsenal need to to go to the next level I think I think you're right about Vlahovic in terms of his, his link-up play and how he does need to be given a bit of a break. I think maybe in the, the era that we're in where you can see you know, all these players on, on YouTube and dig into their stats and stuff, maybe we go a bit overboard. But as you say, Michael, he's a very, very young player who has plenty of room to improve. I think it would be a bit of a difference from Lacazette because he is so good at that kind of link play as well. So it would be a quite significant change there. But um, yeah, Vlahovic is, is going very well in, in Serie A. He's, he you know, had a great season last season, but for Fiorentina, he's scored 16 goals already in the league um, this season. I think it's worth noting as well, which maybe I'm being a bit too much of a, a bore here, but he's sort of padding out his numbers a little bit in terms of penalties. So he scored 11 penalties in the past two seasons, which I think is is right up 
there in terms of any player in, in the top five European leagues. So maybe worth noting, but he's still scoring non-penalty goals at a rate of, of near one in two games, which is good. Um, he's notably overperforming against his XG. He scored just over seven goals more than you'd ex- he'd be expected to, given the chances that he's found himself in over the past two seasons, which you could look at one of two ways. could be down to simply good finishing or just maybe a sustained you know, period of, of luck or other factors that might come into it. So it'd be interesting, again, across his whole career, because he is so young, to see how that kind of plays out. Because he does take quite a few shots from distance. And I don't know whether there's... You know, he's got a good finishing ability. Do not get me wrong. He's a very good finisher. But interesting to see how that might change if you move to the Premier League. It's interesting what you say, Michael, about you know Lacazette skewing towards the being more of a link player. It, it strikes me that... That fits very well into Liverpool's 4-3-3, as we've seen with Firmino. I know Jota is scoring a lot of goals himself, but you know, you've know you got two elite goal-scoring wide forwards and, and they are your main goal threats for the most part. For, for Arsenal and their current system and the way that they're moving under Arteta, their young players behind the striker or complementing the striker, Smithrow, Saka, Odegaard, of course, Martinelli, who we've seen in the last few weeks, probably more of a uh, of a goal getter than them. And I, I accept that Smith Rowe has scored a lot of goals this season, but they do feel like different types of players to those Liverpool attacking midfielders and wide forwards. And, and therefore, maybe the, the owners should be skewing towards someone who has pure goals in them, like Vlahovic, rather than someone to um, knit it all together. It feels like they've already got a few knitters in there yeah that's a fair point yeah that is a good example um comparing it to liverpool yeah they're not really runners in behind they're kind of creative players who drift around and create aren't they so yeah you're right i think they they just need someone who's an all-rounder really and um and yeah i think vlavich could be that man let's talk about spurs because their top scorer in the league is hyung min son uh eight goals he has from 17 appearances in the premier league this season son is, as we know, a, a, a wonderful all-round threat off both feet uh, from wide areas from either side, realistically. Um, but he's not their striker. Harry Kane is and has been for many years now. And Harry Kane's goal-scoring output has been incredibly consistent for the last three years. I'm including penalties in this because it slightly fits my narrative. But looking at FB Ref, Kane's Premier League goals per 90 for the last three completed seasons, 0.63, 0.63, 0.67. And this season, very notably down at 0.25. That's with one penalty scored uh, among his four goals. But Mark, confusingly, when you dig a little bit deeper into the numbers, shots aren't really down. Non-penalty XG per 90, not really down on previous years. What's going on with Kane? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And it's something that uh, myself and Charlie Eccleshare, um, the Tottenham writer for The Athletic, kind of looked at as part of a wider piece of maybe what 2022 has sort of installed for Harry Kane. And we came to the same conclusion, really, that all the all the vital signs kind of look okay in terms of the data with, with Harry Kane. We, we looked at how much he was kind of drifting a little bit more over to the the left uh sort of towards the end of last season and early this season which might be a sort of a the answer might be the that Nuno Espirito Santo he maybe didn't get the best out of him and Kane was dropping deep just that little bit too much but you look at you know the goal he scored against Liverpool recently obviously with Conte being in that kind of far more on the shoulder maybe he needs to just get himself a little bit more centrally again um and just take kind of shots in better areas maybe so playing on the shoulder and getting back to kind of what he knows um, might be 
better rather than trying to do a little bit of everything himself. I don't know. But you're right, the, the underlying numbers don't suggest much of an issue. So it's an interesting one. It's fascinating, Michael, because while he was putting up those very gaudy and very consistent goal-scoring numbers, he developed his game outside of goal-scoring to a remarkable extent. People were talking about Kane being a, a nine-and-a-half, dropping in, linking play, playing good through balls to, to, to Son and Mora, and maintaining that goal threat. Is he still doing that side of the game? And if he is, is there any argument that that's at the detriment to his own goal-scoring numbers? That's a good question. Well, I would say it's not necessarily to the detriment of his own goal-scoring numbers because, as I said before, he got the most goals and the most assists in the Premier League last year. So yeah. he's clearly capable of doing both. <laughs> um, this season, I mean, when I've seen him, he just he, he's all around. Everything about his game is not quite on it. I mean, so far he's got four goals and one assist this season, which is the midway point. And I know he started the season a little bit late because of the transfer saga or whatever. But that's very poor. And I haven't really been impressed by... Is coming short to link play, nor have I been impressed by him in terms of what he's doing in the penalty box either. So whether there's an underlying issue, whether it's a physical issue, obviously he had a very long summer with England, um, played the entire tournament for them up front. Whether it's a psychological thing, whether there's a bit of mental fatigue, maybe it's the fact he didn't really want to be playing for Tottenham at, at this point in this season. I don't know, but I, I don't think it's a tactical thing with him. I, I'm not sure he's scoring fewer goals because he's coming short. I just think everything about his game is not quite on it. Okay, well, Manchester City, Manchester United and Chelsea, it feels like questions around goals and their striker situation were covered in last week's podcast. So if you want to hear Michael and Mark talk about Chelsea, Lukaku, uh, Manchester City, the fact that they have none of the top 10 goal scorers in the league, but 12 players on two goals or more this season already. Uh, the fact of Manchester United trying Cavani and Ronaldo up front together in uh, in Ranić's 4-2-2-2 and whether that's working or not you can listen to last week's episode if you haven't already but we're going to delve into the rest of the division now uh, we'll just go back to Newcastle quickly because uh, we've had our say on the Chris Wood signing uh, Michael's pretty happy with it he likes to see uh, a big strapping plan B uh, at Premier League level he thinks every club should have one and he certainly likes Callum Wilson as well so a thumbs up from Michael from that perspective and in the absence of talking about any more Newcastle strikers this is a good time for me to ask you about Joe Linton because I don't know if this is being talked about enough or maybe if it has I've, I've missed the conversation I've missed the, the intrigue I, I he's become a central midfielder like a proper number eight Joe Linton <laughs> And I know that people who looked at Joel Linton before he signed for Newcastle said, actually, if you think he's a goal-scoring number nine, you're probably missing the point. You know, he might look like one. He might look like what we expect to be a, a classic number nine. That's not really what he did previously, right? That is what Steve Bruce wanted him to do, seemingly, at Newcastle. That, and he did not perform that role hugely well in what was a poor team. He's now just a number eight. And I'm not sure I can remember the last time a striker became a central midfielder a number nine became a number eight in these circumstances so over to you the tactical historian Michael Cox the only player who sprang to mind and this is might be a bit of a weird comparison but I never really understood what Julio Baptista was <laughs> was was he a central midfielder or was he a centre forward but the thing is he didn't struggle for goals I mean he scored a lot even when he was in central midfield but he 
he, he was that kind of he looks like a number nine but actually and did, more and did he field. score goals that looked like a number nine's goals or did he score goals that looked like a goal scoring midfielder's goals <laughs> a and bit what's of the both, difference? I would say. A bit of both. I, I, I agree. I mean, yeah, I don't think it's really a, a similar situation. I mean, it feels more to me a little bit like Dirk Cow at Liverpool, where he played up front and was really hardworking, really good at doing everything but scoring goals. So he became a wide player, but not really like a exciting goal-scoring oh. wide player who interchanged, like someone who's really tucking in and doing pretty much the same job that Benitez had previously asked of, like, John Arnarisa. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, that yeah, was yeah. quite a big shift away. But he certainly wasn't playing as a proper number eight as a central midfielder. I was going to say, no, it's but been a weird shift. I, I, I asked you a hard question. I'm not going to slag off your answer, but we've seen strikers become wide players regularly, right? I'm no, talking about it, no, nine to eight. No, no, I agree. But my point is, if you look at the zone on the pitch where Dirk Cout was, right. I reckon it wouldn't be that different to where Joe Ellington was. Because Benitez previously used fullbacks as the wide players, whether it's Finnan or Risa, he did it all the time. But I appreciate he, you know, he wasn't a number eight. The only another comparison maybe would be Ayosi Perez, who I thought of as a proper centre forward when he was first at Newcastle. Then he became a bit of a number ten, and then sometimes Rodgers has used him as a number eight. But again, I, he's he he's always done well wherever he's played. I feel like Jorlinson's really basically moved because he hasn't been doing the thing you expect of a centre-forward. I don't know whether Joe Linton's probably been a victim of, yeah, since his move to Newcastle as well, that he was placed as a number nine, as you say, Ali, in terms of Steve Bruce putting him there. But as you also say, I think a lot of the the Bundesliga fans said that when he came from Hoffenheim, at Hoffenheim, he was, and I've got to be careful not to say that exactly where he's playing, but I think he was more of a number 10 or a second striker. So maybe sort of a nine and a half. Um, but I don't think he was that out and out number nine as well. So I think it's going from number nine to number eight within Newcastle, but he was never that profile of player at Hoffenheim. So he's almost a victim of of Newcastle and Steve Bruce getting it wrong in the first place. Mm. And then that shift looking even more dramatic than maybe he's a hybrid of all three and just finding his, his best position clearly, because I think it was against Man United. He was outstanding, wasn't he, in his performance? This is where I ask the listeners of the pod, who are far smarter than us, it seems, uh, to let us know. Anyone who has moved definitively from like a goal-scoring nine position to a box-to-box number eight position uh, with any great success, let us know. Uh, and equally, is there anyone currently playing in a number nine position that you think could follow Joel Linton's footsteps and uh, and perform well at Premier League level as a number eight? Interesting stuff. Uh, we've got to talk about Burnley because they have, now have a, a large wood-shaped hole in their squad. But as mentioned, they do have the non-penalty goals per 90 division leader in Maxwell Cornet. Now, the caveat is... He's only played 616 minutes. That's a lot lower than most starting strikers. He's only started eight games this season. But for what seemed like quite an unusual Burnley signing, Michael, this has been one of the best Burnley signings, surely. Yeah, definitely. I find this really interesting. I mean, I've long been fascinated by Burnley and how good they are defensively. Um, And I have often thought, I mean, they came seventh in 2016-17 which I think is one of the best achievements by a Premier League side, considering their budget for a long time. And I think it got overlooked because obviously the previous season, Leicester mm. went six better. Mm. 
But I've always thought if Burnley were able to get a couple of really quality players, like Leicester plucked Myers out of nowhere. I know they signed him when they're in the Championship. But if Burnley had been able to do that with a couple of wide players, how good would they be? And I know Corny hasn't played as a wide player. It turns out he's played as number 10. But it does go to show that just a couple of real top-class players in any kind of system can can make a big difference in terms of what they can do. The ironic thing, of course, is that Burnley as a team have gone backwards. Um, they're really struggling at the moment. I can't really find a link between those two because I don't think it's like Burnley have become entirely based around Corne that everything else they usually do has gone to pot. Mm. I just think probably the rest of the side needed a bit of a, an overhaul as well. But I, I mean, I think Corne might be individually the signing, maybe the outfield signing of the season so far. I mean, people have talked about Ramsdale and Jose Sarr, Wolves, very good goalkeepers, big uh, improvements. But how many out play, outfield players have really done better than Corne individually, considering the stat you, you just said, Ali? And my question to you about Corne is, what's he doing that's working so well? What sort of a profile of an attacker are we talking about here? It seems like he's not an out-and-out number nine. And, and obviously Burnley, one of the few teams where if you're an attacking player, but you're not an out-and-out number nine, you can still play up top in the Premier League. There aren't many teams that play a, a front two. Is he a classic sort of, do you sense needs a, a, a big man, dare I say it, next to him to thrive? Or could he play as a lone striker? I mean, when I saw him previously playing for Leon, he was a wide player and sometimes a wing back and sometimes even a full back. So, I mean, it goes to show that Burnley, you know, forward thinking managers want to have attack minded players in defensive positions and Sean Dyche wants to have a slightly defensive player in a forward position. I can't imagine him playing up front. I think he probably does need someone to play off. But he's been given a little bit of a floating role, a bit of a free role behind Wood. And like I said, I don't think they've really done too much different. I mean, Ashley Barnes hasn't been scoring goals really for a couple of years. But when he was, I thought he was great at that role just behind Wood, kind of getting the knockdowns and the flick-ons and basically playing as a second striker. I think Corne's done that very, very well. And like you say, his finishing has been excellent. I think when you look at his XG numbers, he's on a bit of a hot streak. I mean, he hasn't got that many good chances, but that's probably going to happen if you're playing for Burnley. Um, so it feels to me like they will need a replacement. It'd be interesting to see who they go for because Burnley seem relatively sensibly well run and it feels to me like they'll be getting someone who they think, well, if he doesn't, if we don't stay up, he can do a good job for them in the championship next year as well. Who that will be, I don't know. Yeah, certainly an XG overperformer. You can kind of just see that in his highlights reel. He probably has the best highlights reel of goals this season outside of, of Salah. They spring to mind as just all being powerful, sweet strikes from the edge of the box, you know, um, really impressive stuff. Let's move on to some of the other high performance, uh, high performers rather in the Premier League in terms of goals output, because, you know, we, we, we've been bemoaning the lack of goal scoring number nines, but you can find them. Uh, West Ham have one, Mikel Antonio. Michael, we did our... Christmas Tree 11 draft a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about what you need as a lone striker in the Premier League and to fit certain formations, and in particular that formation where you're going to have attacking midfield players feeding you through balls. You want to run in behind, but you've also got fullbacks whipping in a lot of crosses. You need that physicality. For me, Mikel Antonio just ticks all of those boxes. If you had to put a number nine in your team of the season so far, would it be Antonio? Uh, maybe, certainly be up there for my first month of the season. I think he was probably the best player in the league at that point. He's dipped off a little bit since then, 
But I must say, I've been very impressed with him uh, this season. There's been certain games. I remember when they won 4-1 away at Aston Villa. And Villa scored four times. And Antonio didn't get any goals and didn't get any assists. But he was excellent in his all-round play. And I think that's what he's all about. He can be on his day. A really impressive all-rounder. The interesting thing I found when I uh, researched Mikhail Antonio was uh, his height. (laughs) 1.80 metres. That's the same height as me. Mm. And I tell you what, I would not fancy myself in an aerial duel or any real duel against Mikhail Antonio. I mean, he... He's one of those, but I would have guessed he was six foot two or six well, foot three. Well, let's raise the fact, and, and Mark, I'm sure, will know this as well, if not better than me, but player heights and the internet, a bad mix. That's unreliable for me. It can be quite patchy, yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting <laughs> if you actually stood next to him. I mean, given his, we were speaking before about the physicality of, of forwards, um, standing next to him and sort of comparing just how strong he is because he's he's so physically imposing as well so it probably gives the impression that he's he's taller and bigger than he is because he's got a good leap on him as well but yeah i agree in terms of the the data side of things on the internet with height a little bit patchy for a player as prominent as antonio i trust it i trust (laughs) height i wouldn't trust it for a league one player or something like that but i'm going to find some pictures of him standing next to players (laughs) of of more believable heights and we'll see what the uh, pictures say. Are we sure he wasn't measured at Tooting and Mitcham in 2008 and just never since then? <laughs> There's every chance. It's been a he- hell of a performance, not just this season, but over the last few years as well, Mark. Yeah, I think from an XG perspective, as you say, Michael, he does contribute so well kind of all round in his in his game, physically imposing. He can link the play. He offers so much more than just goals. But I remember at the end of last season, I looked at his XG per 90, um, I think he was either the top or certainly in the top three in terms of the, just the chances that he gets on, on a per 90 basis across the whole of the Premier League, which was really, like, it sort of surprised me. And I think, as I say, people underestimate just how good his his numbers have been in recent years. So his non-penalty XG in the previous two seasons per 90 showed that he was getting essentially chances worthy of two goals every game. And he was underperforming in terms of that goal output in comparison. And it's dropped a little bit this year in terms of that XG per 90. But he's still scoring just shy of one goal in two games, which is really valuable. And you think about it, I guess, historically in the Premier League, I think like the likes of Alan Shearer has sort of said, like, if you were scoring one in two, you were, you were doing really well. And I think that the, the expectations just got higher and higher in recent years. But, you know, one goal in two games for West Ham, I think, is highly valuable. And, and Antonio is putting up some really good numbers. And not just goal scoring numbers as well. He's got uh, a good number of assists as well. I know, Mark, instantly before you jump in, we don't just look at assists. They can be a bit noisy, but his expected assist numbers are pretty impressive as well amongst his uh, striker peers in the Premier League. In terms of goals and assists combined, Antonio is second in the Premier League. Salah, obviously, way clear here. But Antonio with 13 goals and assists combined. And level with him... Watford's Emmanuel Dennis, Michael. Eight goals, five assists. He's also top of the nutmeg charts, if you're interested, per yep. FB ref, one of the best stats that they collate, thanks to Stats Bomb, I believe. Outside of Man City, Liverpool and Chelsea, only three teams have three players or more that have scored five goals this season. That's Leicester, uh, I believe Tielemans, Madison and Vardy. You've got Crystal Palace there. Uh, and Watford, 
are another one of those teams. Uh, Dennis, King and Saar have all scored five goals or more. It's a bit of a funny one with Watford, isn't it? Because despite this, they're still right down there. Uh, as a team, they don't particularly score at a, a hugely high rate uh, and certainly not enough to offset the amount of goals that they've been conceding this season. But just talk me through Dennis, his explosion onto the Premier League stage uh, and where he fits as an attacking player in Premier League terms. Yeah, they're a funny one, Watford. I mean, I, I think King's done really well at times as well. Obviously, that game against Everton when they won 5-2 and he got a hat-trick. But yeah, Dennis has been good. Just seems a really good all-round player. I think he's good at receiving the ball to feet and going behind. Seems to be a very good finisher. Um, so yeah, it's... I mean, they they struggle for goals aside from that. Cucho Hernandez has got two. Uh, Jao Pedro's got one. But they're not really getting any goals from anywhere else. I mean, Kushka's got one from midfield, but nothing else from the midfielders and nothing else from the defenders. So, yeah, they are, in a sense, I suppose, the most old school side in, in terms of, you know, they're not really sharing the goals around. They're sharing it between the forwards, but getting absolutely nothing from midfield. But, um, no, Dennis has done really well. And, uh, yeah, the nutmegs... I don't really care about a nutmeg in itself, but when I first saw that there were nutmeg stats, that really transformed my view of, of nutmeg. So credit to him. Eight goals and top of the nutmeg charts is a great return. Sounds like the sort of thing that you find fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Nutmeg stats, fun. Leicester have Jamie Vardy, who I believe is currently out injured, but who is the highest scoring pure number nine in the league that's only if we're not counting Diogo Jota as a pure goal scoring number nine he is so many different things Vardy certainly is that Michael I dare say there aren't many Vardys in the Premier League and potentially not many Vardys to come in the Premier League but that doesn't mean he's not still deadly in front of goal no he's brilliant I think he's massively underrated in European terms Jamie Vardy I'd say he's been one of the best strikers in European football over the last five or six years, just obviously based upon what he's done in terms of goals, in terms of winning the title. And yeah, I think if you were to compare him to someone playing in the Italian league or the Spanish league, who's a bit more exciting, people would probably laugh at you. But he's a brilliant player, absolutely excellent at what he does. Great running into the channels. I think he's quite underrated in terms of where the, when the ball is wide. I think his movement's very good. He's scored some good headers. I think he's off the ball work is good. He's, he's actually quite selfless as well. He's not just a pure goal scorer. He can wide and I think has often tried to combine well with Iheanacho. Yeah, I mean, he's doing what he's, he's always done, really. Vardy started the, the season very well. Um, and yeah, I, I just love watching him. He scores fantastic goals as well. I'm a massive, massive Jamie Vardy fan. And I guess, as, as I spoke about before as well, he's just a massive throwback as well to be that really good archetypal number nine. And he is a joy to watch as well. And we've mentioned it before, I think, and it's, it's not something that's too insightful we know it to be true in terms of he's not someone who is really is involved in the build-up all that much and um john muller did a, a piece recently of the no touch all-stars and jamie mm. vardy featured quite prominently in that as someone who doesn't get involved in terms of that build-up play as as we speak about more and more number nines are um so i looked at it more specifically i looked at the premier league center forwards with 900 minutes or more uh, played and he's comfortably the lowest in terms of touches per 90 he only averages 21 touches per 90 this season which for context uh, Raul Jimenez at, at Wolves is the highest with 46 touches per 90 so he's having more than double in terms of involvement so it just shows how much as you say Michael off ball running that he does sometimes selfless to drag people out of the way and doesn't actually get on the ball but then when he does get the ball he's, he's often really clinical with those touches in terms of getting in the right areas and, and often getting a shot away 
next we got a group of three teams that we've categorised as they've got different options to play up top and they might not yet be sure what the best one is or what the best partnership is. Starting with Aston Villa, we've spoken a lot about them on this podcast over the last month or so. When they signed Danny Ings, it felt like everyone went, interesting, how are him and Ollie Watkins going to play together? And six months in, it feels like people are still saying, interesting, how are him and Ollie Watkins going to play together? The signing of Felipe Coutinho probably doesn't help clarify that much. Uh, Southampton, well, they're basically two up top, aren't they? Two of Adams, Armstrong or Broja. Uh, Broja particularly is, has scored a lot of goals this season, the other two less so. And Crystal Palace, to me, it feels like a question of Benteke or Eduard, or both at times, with Eduard playing off the left and Benteke as the target man. But again, not exactly the same type of player. Patrick Vieira still trying to work out which one to move forward with. Both of them, at different times this season, have done pretty well. Which of that group of teams, Michael, are you most interested in on this front? Villa. I do think Villa are very interesting. I think we're not, Watkins and Ings have been together. It's interesting. I think of Ings as a bit of a second striker, but it's generally been Watkins playing in one of the roles behind him. I think that probably can continue with Coutinho coming in. I think Coutinho is probably a Buendia replacement. Maybe they'll rotate a bit. Palace, I think it's got to be Eduard going forward. I do like Benteke. I've always defended Ben. I feel Benteke, like he's but... had a bit of a renaissance this mm-hmm. season. He's done all right. I think he's partly had a renaissance because it's probably a bit easier to play for this Palace side <laughs> as a target man than for Hodgson's side. He's, he's, he's done okay this season. You are right. And he does get himself into the right positions. But I think Eduard, I think you've got to put faith in him going forward because I think he's a bit more got a bit more to his game um Southampton a funny one don't know if you have any thoughts on them Mark I'd yeah for that I'd probably go more for in terms of the two um Broja I think because he's, he's doing well at the moment as you say Ali um doing well this season really I I like Armstrong as well I know that, Ali you'll know quite a lot you know about him from his time in the championship he scored for fun didn't he last season in the championship mm. and I think he's been a bit unlucky not to have scored more I think he's maybe adapting a little bit he started the season really well but um, yeah I think I'd, I'd have him um, with Brozier uh, together I really like the look of Armstrong um, on the Palace one I do agree with um, with Edward probably being the the one on his own and then maybe flanked by Zaha on the left and Michael Olise on the Oof. right and then maybe fitting in just because I'm excited Eberichi Eze and then Gallagher as well somewhere as well just that you on paper those names are fantastic for Palace mm. It'd be really exciting they're like a sort of former EFL wonder kids <laughs> all-stars Crystal Palace and uh, I'm very fond of them as a result uh, we've got the last category it's not it's not ending on a positive note really this is a category titled they've got a clear starting nine but they don't score that many goals. Wolves here with Jimenez, who's back from last year's injury, who is clearly their talisman up front, offers a lot all round, I think it's fair to say, is not offering so far this season a huge amount in terms of goal scoring. The wide forwards in this system, Trincao, Huang, Pudence and Traore as a, as a quartet, none of them offering a hugely consistent goal threat, I would say. Uh, they have zero goal threat really from midfield, the midfield too. It's just not their job, Neves and Moutinho. And they have one of the worst attacking set-piece records in the league as well. Uh, so they're not getting a huge amount extra out of that. So I, I suppose I say all that to say, when I've been thinking about Wolves recently, I've actually been quite excited about what they could become with a few improvements I I actually think the base level is excellent I think the organisation is pretty good I think out of possession 
pretty impressive. You've got Brentford and Ivan Tony. Lots to like about Bees this season. Uh, Tony's adaptation to the to the Championship, uh, sorry, to the Premier League. When you consider that he hadn't even played in the Championship uh, until the start of last season, has been very impressive. He got over thirty goals in the Champ last year, albeit quite a lot of penalties. And his goals are obviously down this season, as you'd expect, stepping up. Uh, but clearly doing a lot of work outside of of goal scoring. Interestingly, for Brentford, in terms of non-penalty expected goals per 90, Tony's not their main threat. His strike partner, Mbermo, who benefits a lot from what Tony does occupying defenders, uh, is almost twice the goal threat of Tony in terms of of that stat, non-penalty expected goals per 90. He's obviously more more of a speedster, Mbermo, more of a wide forward if you had to pigeonhole him, um, but thriving next to Tony. Uh, in all but goals because Mbomo's finishing and I can say this with some clarity after watching him for two and a half years is fairly streaky Uh, and then the last two interesting to touch on Neil Mopai of Brighton given the whole narrative around Brighton and XG underperformance it feels like no one in the Premier League Michael has been more openly under threat of losing their position without actually doing so over the last 18 months um, talk to me about Mopai, what he offers, what he lacks, and whether it is as simple as Brighton need another striker because Mopai's not doing what he needs to do. I do quite like him as a forward, actually. And there are often signs that he's going to suddenly become prolific. And when he does score goals, they're often fantastic finishers. Um, I think he is good at getting in the situations. He's still relatively young. And I think that, you know, when you've played in the Premier League for three or four years rather than one or two years, get a bit more experience, maybe become a little bit more relaxed in goal-scoring situations. So, yeah, I think Potter will stick with them, to be honest. I'm not sure they will look to bring in someone uh, more expensive or more glamorous. I think he broadly does the does the job. I think the issue for Brian is they've got players who are quite like that in terms of they're lively and they're good at a lot of stuff but not finishing. I think you can say the same about Danny Welbeck, although he did score a great head against Chelsea recently. And Trossard, who I think is a brilliant player, it doesn't quite get the goals in the city you might expect of someone who is just so talented. Lastly, on this front, Norwich have Temu Puki as their number nine and have done for a good few years now. He's got five Premier League goals, two of them penalties. Outside of Puki, they have three players who have scored one goal and that's it. Two of those are, are centre-backs as well. Puki, not the issue here, Mark. Yeah, I think we spoke before on, on the podcast how Puki is the the sole threat uh, in terms of you know attacking wise for Norwich and it's not necessarily him being the issue of being able to to finish I think it's the the service into him uh, that's kind of been the issue because I, again it's coming from the championship but he scored he also scored for fun he scored 26 goals the the penultimate time that uh, they were in the championship and 29 the last season or maybe that's the other way around I'm not sure but in the in the high 20s in terms of goals scored in the championship in previous seasons just hasn't been able to quite do it in the Premier League which to me suggests that it's just that service and that build up to him Um, and I don't know whether Ali there's anything for you that you've noticed in terms of that difference between the championship and the Premier League that's sort of fundamental in that difference between Puki because we know that he is a he is ultimately a good finisher. I'm I'm always struck, as was clear in what I said about Premier League strikers earlier, about they they just all have this, or almost all have this incredible physicality, upper body strength, um, happy banging into defenders, and that's where I think Puki might just fall down a little bit in Premier League terms. I think his movement is excellent, his finishing is good, um, his link play underrated, as you guys have alluded to, but maybe that's a bit of an issue, just 
pace off the mark, um, short bursts, or whether it's physicality, I, I'm, I'm not so sure. The, the last category, there'll be Everton and Leeds fans who have been shouting at their headphones for the last hour or so. Uh, and that's because the last category is injured main man and suffering because of it. Everton and, and Leeds both fall into this category. Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Patrick Bamford have both missed large portions of this season. Uh, and Michael, it's important to bring these two up to finish because maybe we should have done it before. A factor of us saying, oh, there's a lack of recognisable number nine scoring goals this season is probably because two of the most recognisable number nines that scored goals last season have just been out injured. Yeah, and Calvert Lewin's got three and four when he has actually been in the side. Um, they've been frustrating to watch Everton. I mean, I, I know they've had injuries. I don't really understand Benitez's obsession with Rondon. He's only scored one. I think, from memory, I think I was an open goal as well. Um, and he's had 655 minutes. He just doesn't really look at it. I've been surprised on a couple of occasions. I think particularly the game against Liverpool, that Richarlison was played behind rather than as the main striker. Because when Richarlison has played as the main striker, um, including in that game against Arsenal that they won late on, um, he's been really good. The only funny thing about Richarlison is his aerial dual percentage is very low in terms of how many headers he wins. 19%. Only Damari Gray, Phil uh, Foden and Timu Puki have got lower than him this season. I find that bizarre because he's actually very good at attacking the ball from crosses. But clearly from high balls, goal kicks or whatever, he's just not very good at winning the, the first ball. I think that's it, isn't it? I think that there, and I wonder if this is something we could ever achieve uh, with the data. To me, in terms of aerial duels uh, and and a, particularly a striker's um, output from them, you have to try and split the two. Um, Ollie Watkins always springs to mind for me here. Not that he's bad in sort of general play and, and receiving long balls, let's say long goal kicks from the goalkeeper. But in the championship in his last season, he scored more headed goals than Mitrovic. But the way they scored their headed goals were completely different. Mitro, you would often see climbing above a defender using his height and his upper body strength and his just nouse, because I think there's an inherent nouse that comes with being used to taking contra uh, taking contact, uh, absorbing contact while also climbing, while also heading the ball towards the goal. It's an incredibly different, difficult aspect of football, isn't it? But you get players like Watkins and, dare I say it, Jota, you mentioned him earlier, of Liverpool. Their headed goals are often uncontested headed goals, which to me, uh, and, and I'm not sure where Richarlison fits in this, but to me suggests their movement inside the penalty box is excellent. That's why they're able to get that separation. They're not climbing above defenders and heading over centre-backs. They're actually just finding space inside the box. And that, you know, it, you still need a finishing ability with your head, but it comes down to movement maybe more than physicality. That's why I'd like to somehow separate those two things. Yeah, I mean, it would be a good thing to do with um, data as long as we didn't have to look at the height because I know you find those <laughs> figures deeply untrustworthy, are they? Very good, very good. Leeds have clearly missed Patrick Bamford. Uh, his his debut season in the Premier League was sensational, you have to say, um, from where he'd come from and some of the, the trials and tribulations he'd had in front of goal, particularly in the Championship. Uh, they have tried to fill that gap with Tyler Roberts, the young Joe Geldhard, Daniel James, um, different players, different levels of experience, certainly different levels of physicality uh, compared to Bamford. And, and I think Leeds have certainly suffered for that. So it'd be good to see Bamford back. And hopefully him and Calvert-Lewin can start to, um, well, yeah, 
get the goals in and make this less of a conversation as the season continues. But I think it's been worth having. Massive thank you to both of you for your hard work putting together uh, this pod and providing another interesting topic for the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. That's it from us this week. Really hope you've enjoyed listening to this, guys. Let us know on Twitter if you have any follow-up questions, any points you'd like to make that you think we've missed and certainly any suggested topics for future episodes. We're always all ears. Thank you to Mark and Michael for joining me, Ali Maxwell. You can read all of their stuff on The Athletic site and you can sign up for The Athletic today. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics is what you need to type into your browser. You'll be offered a 33% discount on an annual subscription. And please do join us again next week on The Athletic Football Tactics podcast. The Athletic.